You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 286. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, I have some interviews in the can already today, but uh, after all of these episodes about uh, the new constitution that I decided to write, I just uh, wanted the opportunity to talk to you independently. You know, when I take too long to do a solo show, I kind of lose some of that solo show uh, muscle memory, and I forget what it's like to uh, to talk to you guys for, I don't know how long we're going to talk, 20, 30 minutes uh, w- w- without taking a break. It's kind of crazy. Um, speak, speaking of which, speaking of, of the new Constitution documents, I, uh, I got some really interesting feedback on these documents, as well as some ideas to shore it up. So it will look a bit different from the way I described it on the show. For those of you who weren't listening to those shows, I uh, basically, uh, you know, rewrote our entire government. No, uh, uh, basically made some suggestions as to how we could restructure our government uh, based on some of the principles that we've been discussing for many years here on The Local Maximum. Uh, so a lot of people uh, have told me that, that it's, they find the document interesting because it was not written by a politician. It was not written by a lawyer, but written by someone like me as an engineer, kind of approach it from a, from a different perspective. So definitely check that out, um, localmaxradio.com slash uh, you know, 283, uh, 4, and 5, uh, if you, if you want to check out the episodes, but also you know, look out for the, uh, the actual document, which is coming out pretty soon. Uh, I probably won't do another show devoted entirely to the proposal, but uh, I will come out with my paper soon and, and definitely some shows on things like proportional representation and election theory and, and other ideas uh, on, on that, which is always very interesting from like a mathematical and a computational perspective. All right. Also, I was recently interviewed uh, for the podcast Data on the Rocks. It has not come out yet, but uh, the host, he asked me about episode 213, which was on artificial consciousness, uh, where I personally, I really turned against the idea of AIs being conscious. And this was pre-ChatGPT, so this is like, this, this idea is going to come up a lot, you know, uh, again and again in the post-generative, uh, post, uh, post-GPT uh, kind, of a, kind of a world. And so, uh, and, and in that case, it was an open AI scientist who said, maybe our AI is a little bit conscious. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Are they just trying to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, drum up controversy and that sort of thing. Uh, but um, I decided to talk about that a little bit today uh, because an article came out recently, Scientific American, June 2023, a 25-year-old bet about consciousness has finally been settled. So who was betting and what were they betting on and who supposedly won? So the two bets were Christoph Koch, who is a neuroscientist, and David Chalmers, who is a philosopher. Uh, Both are probably good targets for being guests on the show. Uh, because this is a topic that I want to get into more and more, uh, you know, when it comes to consciousness and some of the philosophy of mind and philosophy of AI type stuff. This article here uh, in Scientific American explains their 1994 disagreement, just as Crick and geneticist 
James Watson solved heredity by decoding DNA's double helix. Scientists would crack consciousness by discovering its neural underpinnings or correlates. Or so Crick and Koch claimed, they even identified a possible basis for consciousness, brain cells firing in synchrony 40 times per second. Not everyone in Tucson was convinced. Chalmers, younger and then far less well-known than Koch, argued that neither 40 hertz oscillations nor any other strictly physical process could account for why perceptions are accompanied by conscious sensations, such as the crushing boredom evoked by a, a jargony lecture. Or uh, I have a vivid memory of the audience perking up when Chalmers called consciousness the hard problem. And I'll get into that a little bit, the hard problem. That was the first time I heard that now famous phrase. Chalmers suggested that the hard problem might be solved by assuming that, quote, information is a fundamental problem of reality. This hypothesis, unlike Crick and Koch's 40 hertz model, could account for consciousness in any system, not just one with a brain. Even a thermostat, which possesses a little information, might be a little conscious, Chalmers speculated. So this is getting, to me... These guys are going off the rails a little bit, but I'd love to hear from them. But let's let's go on. Unimpressed, uh, Koch, and I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I know it's like the hard CH, uh, confronted Chalmers at a cocktail reception and denounced his information hypothesis as untestable and hence pointless. Why don't you just say that when you have a brain, the Holy Ghost comes down and makes it conscious, Koch grumbled. Chalmers replied coolly that the Holy Ghost hypothesis conflicted with his own subjective experience. But how do I know that your subjective experience is the same as mine? Koch explained. How do I even know you're conscious? Koch was implicitly raising what I call the solipsism problem, which I will return. So the article, which is a really interesting article, it's by uh, scientific American author John Horgan. Uh, it goes on later to discuss how, how both of these people became involved in, in something called IIT, which is Integrated Information Theory of Consciousness. Honestly, I've been having trouble wrapping my head around IIT. And even as someone who's been reading about this for, for many years, although not too deeply, some of the other subjects I've been on, some of this, uh, you know, some of this consciousness is information stuff just sounds crazy to me. I, I, I just don't get it. So let's look at the bet itself. What was the bet? Koch bet that by this time, 2023, there would be some clear evidence for a neural signature of consciousness. You know, what is it our brain that is actually causing this phenomenon for us to like experience life and not just be, uh, you know, not just be uh, uh, particles uh, uh, colliding into each other, you know, and can we measure it? Um, and so it seems like, well, this is a really hard problem, but you know, science moves fast. So maybe in 25 years, uh, we'll have a clue as to what's going on. Turns out, we still don't have a clue. All of the theory so far has either been unfalsifiable or if there are experiments people have tried, it seems like those experiments have been inconclusive. Uh, so I guess Koch lost the bet, but it didn't turn out too badly for him. The bet was only for a case of wine. It wasn't for like $10,000 or $100,000. Uh, he actually doubled down on his bet for another 25 years uh, when these guys will be in their 90s, to which Chalmers said, uh, sure, I think I'll win, but I hope I'll lose. In other words, 
I really hope we get to the bottom of this hard problem of how consciousness is is created, but I'm just not, I just don't think we will. So um, my comments are, you know, first of all, it's really funny that for all of this talk of artificial intelligence as artificial beings, we as humans still cannot wrap our heads around the idea of consciousness. In other words, like I said before, we don't have a clue. We seem to have some philosophical discussions around it, which is kind of the the germ, the seed of a scientific discussion, um, but but not quite a scientific discussion yet. We have maybe some working hypotheses, uh, but we have no way to adjudicate these hypotheses. There's no scientific method here to try. In other words, how do we use Bayesian inference on the, these ideas? If I say consciousness is caused by X, and you say consciousness is caused by Y, uh, <laughs> do we have any test that can tell us whether it's more likely to be X or more likely to be Y? You know, is it some kind of quantum effect or some kind of vibrations or whatever? How do those cause subjective experiences? I've never heard a convincing uh, tale about how some physical process causes it. And, and how can we gain evidence even to distinguish between these theories? As far as I can tell, there's not much uh, in the way of that. Um, and there are, by the way, people who don't believe in consciousness, uh, they say that consciousness is an illusion. But it turns out that even illusions have physical properties behind it and reasons for it. So you could study illusions and try to figure out what causes those illusions. I mean, look, color is itself an illusion. I mean, color kind of points to a physical property of, of something, um, but but the the experience of color is something that we create in our in our mind. But we understand color and how light works quite a bit. Um, personally, I, I think consciousness is real, but I uh, I can't ascribe it to a machine because I don't know <laughs> what consciousness is right now. And by the way, I think it's almost certain that every person on the planet has consciousness. I mean, I think so. I just just by argument of analogy, you know, if I if I'm conscious, I. I, I look at everyone else. Uh, I see they're kind of similar to me, so they must be conscious as well. I'm going to stick with that argument. I haven't heard a good counter argument to that, but open to it. Um, so one of the questions that arises that from, from, from what these people are saying is they believe that consciousness can arise out of pure information or pure computation. Is consciousness something that is information-based? Or is it something else entirely having nothing to do with computation? And so I think it, it might be the latter. It might be something that has that has nothing to do with computation, in which case AI is just a, a system that they trick us into believe that it has human-like qualities. That said, I, I, I agree with um, Chalmers that I, and Koch as well that I want to believe that we'll discover something about it one day. And so... I have more questions to ask than more answers. Like, is it physically possible to gather evidence for consciousness within our user, universe? Or is it something that comes externally from our universe and doesn't allow itself to be inspected? I don't think we can make that second. Um, uh, we can, I guess it's possible. You know, <laughs> the universe might not allow itself to be inspected in that way. But I think that the history of science shows us that uh, a lot of things that we thought maybe were impossible to discover one day became discover discoverable. So I suspect that it is physically possible, but it's not something that we have a clue on how to do. I mean, because look, our consciousness obviously connects to the physical world in some way. It's a, a mind-body problem. So there must be some, uh, so, so there, there likely is some kind of physical evidence 
for it. What form that comes in, I have no idea. You know, a, a good example that I thought of uh, is like we know today what, what the stars are made of and, and different stars are, have a different composition and, and we know what those compositions are by looking at the stars. Seems like that would have been kind of uh, seemed impossible uh, in the past when, when learning how far away these stars are. It might be like, well, we'll never know that much about them. Turns out we can, we can tell a lot about them. So maybe the same thing uh, is occurring in our consciousness Interestingly, to go back to the hard problem, what, what Chalmers said, he kind of um, he kind of creates something called the the meta hard problem. So the hard problem, what is the hard problem? First of all, it's kind of funny because the hard problem is we don't know what causes subjective experience, so we don't know what causes um, uh, a consciousness. So if there's no physical component to the to the problem, it's hard. If there is a physical component, it's an easy problem. So <laughs> so. Uh, there could be some so-called easy problems that are still really, really, really hard. Uh, but um, but he comes up with this meta-hard problem, which is like not what it's, is consciousness, but what is causing us to claim that we have consciousness or perceive that we have consciousness. And I guess he claims that this is something physical that we could maybe discover through the brain. And if we could discover it through the brain, then, you know, like, because we could discover through the brain maybe why people believe the way they, they believe in, in things and, 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 and w what their perceptions are. So there might be some, like, brain scanning technology and, you know, putting that through, through I don't know, neural network statistical analyses to try to, try to figure something out about that question. Um, so that, that meta-hard problem, which is why do we perceive consciousness, according to Chalmers, would be an easy problem, <laughs> but, but still e e incredibly hard. But I guess his, his thought there is that we, if we begin to uh, use biology and computation to begin to attack that problem, where maybe we do have a clue, then maybe it could give us uh, some clues into the hard problem itself. Just some food for thought there. All right. So... Consciousness is one thing. The Turing test, which is a, a famous artificial test, is an entirely number thing. Is entirely a different thing. Uh, the Turing test means that a computer can f fool a human into thinking it's human. Um, actually, scratch that. It's not just about a, a computer fooling a human into thinking it's human. Uh, you know, that's actually pretty easy to do <laughs> if the human isn't suspecting it. I mean, imagine how many times you've been fooled, at least temporarily, by chatbots, bots on Twitter, all that. Uh, the Turing test actually requires uh, one human and one machine that would both claim to be human, and a, a judge would have to distinguish between the two. So it's not like you get fooled in the spur of the moment. You actually have a 50-50 chance, and you have to really uh, um, um, kind of administer a test to make that distinction. That's much harder than, than, than kind of a uh, sort of a, a temporary uh, Twitter outfit. Um, and I believe that hasn't been done yet. I think even with ChatGPT, you could figure out that it's, uh, that it's uh, a machine pretty quickly. But unlike consciousness, we do have a clue how to solve this problem. And with generative AI and transformers, we're getting closer to the Turing test uh, all the time. Recently, in the MIT press, there was an article about a reverse Turing test. So I thought this was interesting uh, in light of these large language models. So we're going to be turning the tables on the humans. Uh, in short, we're going to be turning Turing on us people. Uh, what does that mean? Here's a quote from the article. The Turing test is given to AIs 
to see how well they can respond like humans. In mirroring the interviewer, LLMs, which are the large language models, you know, chat GPT, all that fun stuff, uh, may effectively be carrying out a much more sophisticated reverse Turing test, one that tests the intelligence of our prompts and dialogue by mirroring it back to us. The smarter you are and the smarter your prompts, the smarter the LLM appears to be. If you have a passionate view, the LLM will deepen your view. This is a consequence of priming, and your language ability does not necessarily imply LLMs are intelligent or conscious in a way that we are. What it does imply is that LLMs have an exceptional ability to mimic many human personalities, especially when fine-tuned. A formal test of the mirror hypothesis and the reverse Turing test could be done by having human raters assess the intelligence of the human interviewer and the intelligence of the um, large language model. According to the mirror hypothesis, the two should be highly correlated. You could informally score the three interviews and connect the, the, the dots. So I think the idea is that the smarter the human seems, the smarter the machine seems. Um, and then on, on first glance, to, to me, that sounds like, okay, well, that means that the machine will be as if the, they can mirror a smart person and mirror a dumb person, then the machine has got to be smart because they got to mirror the smart person. But it might not mean that. Uh, it might just mean that the machine is exceptionally good at copying and mirroring. And once it detects your mode of, uh, mode of dialogue, when it mirrors that, it will appear to have the same intelligence. So that's really interesting. Uh, in addition to what I mentioned before, the open AI uh, uh, engineer saying it's a little bit consciousness, there was also episode 236 with um, this engineer. Uh, his last name was... Lemoyne, I'm, I'm not sure what his first name was, that engineer at Google who, um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, claimed that uh, Google's Lambda had come to life and, um, you know, there were many ethical concerns there. So basically, the test is rating both the machine and, the, and, and, and this case is mentioned in the, in the MIT article. Uh, so basically, as, as well as a few other cases where, where humans and, and, and machines were interacting in that way. So basically, in this test, the human is, racing, is rating both the machine and the human, and then is rating the machine being judged by the human and rating the human judging machine that is administering the forward Turing test. This is kind of some kind of Turing test inception, sort of crazy. I'm not entirely sure what the outcome of the test is supposed to be other than we see that the two values, how the human speaks and prompts and how the machine speaks uh, back are correlated. But I think a lot more can be said about intelligence in general, and I look forward to debating this with Aaron when we do our show on the AI doomers. All right, one more thing, and this is way easier tech to wrap your head around than artificial intelligence and consciousness and all that. Um, so let, let's get to something a little easier. Let's get a, give our minds and brains a little break here, uh, and especially since we've been living through these really fantastic upgrades in this particular area of technology over the last few decades, and we feel the effect so easily and that's display technology, you know, what you can see on your, on your monitor, through your glasses, all that. And, you know, when a better display uh, comes out, there's no one who has to write a think piece about here is how to benefit from so-and-so's new display technology. I know how to benefit. I buy it and I look at it. That's it. So we all kind of know what to do. Um, I remember in the early 2010s when 3D TVs and curved TVs were the latest, and uh, I couldn't find the article, but I remember reading an article saying that uh, folding TVs were considered uh, were going to be the, the the next big thing. 
for 2020. Well, that didn't happen. I don't have a TV that folds up. I have some pretty, I've seen some pretty cool OLED TVs a lot of people are getting that kind of look like paintings when they're off, which is pretty awesome. But um, what is the point of this folding technology and could it still be on the horizon? It's interesting that foldable technology and the Vision Pro are, which is, you know, Apple's glasses are both space-saving technology. In other words, it, you know, it means that I have a desk right here in front of me with all of these monitors and all these screens. Um, it would be nice to save some of that space. If I could just put it right in front of my eyes, I could see, you know, a, a full desk of monitors without anything physically being there. Um, if I have a, a folding TV, that would be pretty awesome because, um, I don't know why it would be awesome, honestly. Uh, It's not like I'm going to put something in that area. But actually, no, in my apartment in Brooklyn, when it was pretty small, it might have been pretty useful. Um, So, uh, yeah, so, of course, the Vision Pro, which is the I spoke about with Aaron in in episode 281, uh, promises to remove all other physical displays, which is pretty interesting. Um, But in terms of the foldable technology, and, and also the corollary to that is the rollable technology, like imagine you have a phone or whatever that you can roll up like a, like a scroll or something. Hear ye, hear ye, you know, all that. Um, Anyway, uh, this has come up in the New York times recently, according to the New York times review by Brian Chen uh, of the Google Pixel Fold, uh, these foldable phones are getting quite impressive. They're getting better and better. So maybe it's not just a fad. Maybe it will be standard someday. And I, you know, I for one would uh, would celebrate the return of a flip phone. You know, goodbye, click. Uh, uh, that could be a lot of fun. The OLED technology that makes these new flip phones possible is expensive. That foldable Google phone is eighteen hundred dollars. But you know, uh, display technology. Uh, does move fast. Prices do come down over the time, over time, as we know from our from our TVs and, and such. And if they can get the price down, as the author of this uh, this review expects, then maybe this will become the standards. It sounds way better than, uh, and it sounds like from the review, he finds that this technology is way better than either a phone or a tablet, because you know. Unlike a tablet, the fold allows you to kind of open it up and read it like a book, where a tablet is kind of like this big clunky thing in your hand. And it's more than a phone because that extra screen real estate apparently is a game changer. So we'll see. Uh, Another display tech that I came across, this is going to be a blast from the past from the 2000s, this time in in TechCrunch. Um, And all of these uh, articles will be going on localnextradio.com slash 286 for this show, uh, is color e-ink. Remember e-ink? I don't know if you, uh, if you have a Kindle. I should have gotten my Kindle out for this. Uh, I don't know if you have a Kindle or, or an Oasis from Amazon where you can read uh, books. Um, uh, you know, I, some of you might still have e-readers. As you can see, I have a lot of physical books back here still. So maybe 10 years ago, I thought I was going to move over to e-reading, and, and I never quite do, did it. Uh, I have some reasons for that. Um, I remember... When the Kindle came out, um, I was working at Wireless Generation, an education technology company at the time, and um, you know, we were coding for the Palm Pilot. So we had our educational assessments or whatever. We had teachers marking things down on the Palm Pilot that would sync uh, to the web. And so we were really interested in mobile technologies used for education. So when the iPhone came out in June 2007, you know, no one was going out and buying that immediately, um, but... Some our, our VP of product bought an iPhone for the company, uh, brought it into the main conference room, and we 
checked out that first iPhone in June 20, 2007. It was pretty awesome. And then the same thing, the Kindle, in November 2007, they brought that in. And back then, it was a big Kindle, like the size of not even a book, but uh, I can't, um, maybe, maybe the size of like this yellow pad right here. Uh, you know, these big yellow pads that I use to write things down, uh, something like that. Um, so, um, and the, the refresh rate, it took like two, three seconds to refresh the next page. It was still pretty cool. And so, you know, we got to look at some of the devices of the future back then. I don't think there really is a, uh, that was a really good time to be in tech in 2007 for, um, for new display tech. I don't think there really are those kind of hardware product launches now. I mean, now it's like, okay, they launched the Vision Pro. Maybe it'll come out like next year. You know, people are excited about it, but there, there just aren't those kind of ideas of game-changing hardwares uh, that there, there were. That might change, by the way. But anyway, um, so I, I saw the Kindle in November 2007. A few years later, there were some articles out about color e-ink, but like the folding phones, it sounded too expensive. The refresh rates were too long. The color, you know, wasn't even that good. Uh, and honestly, people were reading these books that didn't have color. They were all words. So um, it, it, they, they couldn't make it into a working consumer product. Interestingly enough, I think there's a way to integrate color into books like if you're using the e-reader and you kind of want to click the book to kind of look up a dictionary de definition, you might want to have like some of the commentary being a different color or something like that um, to kind of enhance your, your reading experience. You can see what the actual words of the book, book is. Uh, but, you know, apparently uh, they never got that to work at, at a product as a product. At some point, uh, I remember uh, like 10 years ago, there were these things coming out called color e-readers on the market, but they weren't really color e-readers. They were really some kind of glorified iPad. So it's like, okay, back to, I might as well just read on my iPad rather than reading on my, you know, um, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, whatever that thing was that, um, but not their e-reader, but their e-reader that was, that was basically a tablet. And so it's like, why, this is not a good reading experience. Why am I, I reading here? Um, but a recent article came out in TechCrunch saying that that some of this e-ink technology is getting better and better, uh, and uh, and so they speculate as to where it's going to go. Are e-readers still as popular? Uh, they still sell them. I've gone back to physical books, um, but I like e-readers, and I, I, I like uh, having. I, I have more space since leaving New York, though, uh, which is why I have room for these physical books. I feel like I'd, I'd love to have books on both the e-reader and in physical form. You know, Amazon or whatever should should sell them both, um, you know, as a package, in my view, um, because it's a better experience. You get the physical copy and, and then you could, you know, read it on the go as well. Um, these days, and this is something that I did not consider in 2012 and 2013, these days I feel with digital books, they're going to change it. They like change it on you when it says something inconvenient in the current year. It's not politically correct. They want to go back and change what the author says. They'll just they'll just wipe it clean. So, you want to change my physical book? Come and make me. Uh, but uh, um, you know, uh, um, um, you know, th that's kind of the danger in digital books. Still, I think color e ink is a cool technology. Um, and so this article has some stuff on on e ink, uh, which is th there's one company called e ink in the Boston area that makes it for, kin, for uh, Amazon Kindle and, and all the other ones. And so they, they, they were presenting at CES. Um, and and uh, right, again, e-ink is in the Kindle, all the other e-readers. E um, let's read this. E-ink 
posted up at the Venetian. Oh, very, very nice, uh, very nice hotel uh, and casino. Uh, E-Ink posted up at the Venetian for CES 2023, and inside its makeshift showroom, the MIT spinoff crammed its latest tech, including pieces of its wacky PMW wrap and its latest Gallery 3 colored displays. The latter tech is now trickling into the market, starting with devices like the Pocketbook Viva. And let me tell you, these displays look outright vivid next to the washed-out hues in E-Ink's Kaleido color displays, which debuted just two years ago. Gallery 3's CMYK displays can spit out 50,000 colors at 300 dpi, way, way up from the Kaleido's 4,000 colors, the company said. Uh, we aren't ever going to be the best movie-showing screen. U.S. business lead Timothy O'Malley stated the obvious in an interview with TechCrunch, but E-Ink's goals are still stretching way into iPad territory. Eventually, E-Ink aims to build a magazine reading experience that's good enough to win over even the most demanding publishers, O'Malley told TechCrunch. It also pointed out the popularity and great use case for signage, which I agree that is a great use case, because you don't care if the refresh rate is high for for signage, it could be 10 seconds, in, or as, as they're achieving here, they're achieving one to two seconds to refresh uh, color, whereas refreshing black and white is um, you know, measured in milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, nearly instantaneous. Um, but one to two seconds, or even 10 seconds to change a sign that I have, like, oh, I wanna change the, uh, the, the specials that I have in my, uh, in my store today. 10 seconds, I don't care, two seconds, great. Uh, so. As long as it look good, it looks good and can be changed inexpensively, I think that's a good use case. So the company has a great demo, which shows promise, but the journalist here, and again, I don't, <laughs> who do you trust more, journalists or people pimping their company? I don't know. I, I don't trust either of them. I'm not in a very good position here. Uh, but the journalist here also stated that the, the company got quite cagey and hand wavy when asked, okay, when did this actually come out on the Kindle and stuff? Um, I'm sure the Kindle does some great innovative stuff, uh, or, or not the Kindle, I'm, I'm sure the Ian company does some great innovative stuff. I'd, I'd even consider having them on the show, but it sounds like, you know, we, we, we can't uh, quite uh, count on them having like this minority report, like changing newspaper magazine quite yet. I, I don't think they're there. Uh, and it sounds like it sounds like they're they're not even making any promises, so, so that's a little disappointing. But uh, still, I, I want to follow this technology in the future. What do you think? Localmaxradio at gmail.com or uh, join our locals, maximum.locals.com to discuss this tech and, uh, and what you think about it. All right, next few weeks, um, I've got some interviews from people that I, I met at, at Porkfest, including, uh, including Peter Earle on ESG, uh, in, in companies, in environmental, social, government uh, requirements that uh, the companies required, uh, why it's harmful and why it might be going out the door, thankfully. I want to talk to Aaron about a bunch of things, including AI doomerism. So a lot of great things in the pipeline. Uh, always remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. 
If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.